Good afternoon. You know, we, uh, in this year, I think, more than any other year that I can remember, have a yearning for the light of Christmas. We have a really strong desire for that, that light to come in and break up the darkness. Now, it's not just uh, the fact that in these days, I think it gets dark around the time I get to eat lunch. And it is rather nice to have the Christmas lights around so that it breaks up some of that gloominess, um, that, that they come on and brighten up the environment. But all of us have, have been almost pounded this year with darkness after darkness. You just have to reflect upon this past year, and, and you almost get overwhelmed with a sense of darkness. We've all heard the, the stories, especially recently, of the, the sexual abuse that's going on. We, we get this, uh, this gloom of, of uh, political division. We've heard the stories, it seems like almost every month, of, of, a, of a mass shooting that's going on. Let alone that some of the issues that, that are going on in your own life, some of the burdens that you bear. And, and there's this desire in us to say, just give me five minutes of Christmas, please. And let me some, turn some positive music on. I want some eggnog and some lights and some tinsel because I need a break from it all. That spirit has been around for a long time, especially around this time of year. It's the same spirit that, that caused many other cultures to look at this time of year, feel the burden of everything that's going on and the darkness of the, of the, the nighttime around them and, and say, yes, we need something. So the Romans celebrated this time of year to have a, a festival for the sun god. Now the pagan cultures look to, to this time as the, the time where they will celebrate the winter solstice. Because they all have this sense that they need a break. And honestly, that's a part of the motivation we have for this series, an Advent series. Contemplating the darkness that we've been in and this yearning for light. But of course, we're not going to settle for the, the cheap, blinky Christmas lights and some tinsel. No, it's profound. When Scripture contemplates Christ and his coming, that the, the metaphor, the symbol that got into many of the New Testament writers' minds, and even in fact, Jesus himself referred to it, is the concept of light. And that great passage as John wants to articulate what it's like for Jesus to be born, in John chapter 1, verse 5 says, the light appeared, and the darkness was unable to overcome it. In fact, that'll be a verse that will uh, set the theme for this whole series. Now, just as a way of disclaimer, there is nothing about uh, Christmas in particular that um, the scripture commands us to observe. We're not, we're not told that we need to be especially religious at this time, although many people see this as a time to, to go to church and, and perform some ceremonies. Scripture doesn't draw attention to that. In fact, we don't even know when Jesus was born, what time of year it was. But what we do know, and what we've recognized as a, as a church, is that this is in your life. You're confronted by Christmas and the messages of Christmas all around, whether you're going to the dentist's office or whether you're in the mall shopping. The songs are just there. The, 
presence of this land. And so we want to speak into it. We want to speak into it better than the hope that this world can bring. We want to speak into it real hope. And that's exactly what Paul looks at as he turns to this passage, as we turn to this passage that he's written in 1 Thessalonians, this powerful message of hope, one that has actual teeth, one that doesn't, doesn't look for a break from the darkness, but a hope that can do something about the darkness. So as we turn to that, let's ask God to bless our reading of it and be with us now. So will you pray with me? God, we do ask that you speak your word into our lives. You tell us that your word is even described as a light. It's a light to our feet. I pray that you will uh, open the eyes of our heart to see it and to follow it. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage sets up a contrast, a very vivid contrast between two groups of people. Paul calls the one group, the people of the darkness, and the other group, the people of the light. And then he goes on to make descriptions of the light side and the dark side. Not Star Wars. Uh, and it's not even ethical, light or dark, right? Um, sometimes Paul will speak about light and dark in ethical terms. Of these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. But here, the way he speaks about lightness and darkness is to defer to the the hope they have or the, the hope they are lacking. And so that's the terms that he picks up in this passage. Paul wants to make this distinction, especially to this young church, because he sees a church that is living inconsistently. They should have a hope that's grounding them, that is the, of the light, but he finds that they are actually living in denial of that. They are living just like they were of the darkness. And so he goes into a description now in chapter 5. And to use that description, he starts to point them to the day of the Lord. A day in human history when all things will be uh, wrapped up. A day when Christ will return. Now that's not very surprising. Many Christians, when they want to talk about hope, they will point to some time in the future. They will look to a time when the blessings of Christ and all that he has for them will come to into reality. And so that actually makes this a very good Advent passage. Advent is the word meaning coming, and it doesn't always uh, mean a celebration of Christ's first coming, but frequently in church history it's, it's been used to refer to looking forward in expectation to Christ's second coming. But you know, the interesting thing Paul does here is that when he draws attention, points to this church to look to the second coming, he doesn't start talking about the blessings that will come through Christ. He doesn't talk really much about what that day will be like or the content of it. What he is focused on here is the timing of that day. And maybe even more confusing, he says, you don't even need to know when that will happen. He says to them, I have no need to write you when this will take place. No charts, no prophecies, no thing that must happen in order for this to, go, to, to come about. He doesn't go through signs. He says, it will come and you cannot predict it. It will come 
suddenly. And that's what Paul wants to zero in on. It is the suddenness of the coming of this day that matters. Because it's the suddenness that will be able to reveal to you whether you actually have this hope, whether you're appropriating it in your life, or whether you are without hope. And that is what he uses, the suddenness of the coming, to paint this picture for this church, to show these two sides. So let's look at the description of these two sides. Let's start firstly with what he will call the people of the darkness, the people who have no hope. How does he describe it? Well, he says that when the day of the Lord comes, the one word that could define their response is shock. It will come upon them with great surprise. Paul in, in, uh, frequently loves a good mixed metaphor. Begins to make a description. And if you read it, he says, For the people of darkness, the coming of the Lord will be like a thief that comes in the night to a pregnant woman who is about to go into labor, who is in the dark and asleep and maybe perhaps drunk. He sort of mixes all these things together. I I don't think he means it to take it all at one time. But if you look at all of these images that he just throws at you, the sense you get is of being unexpected, surprise. These are people that will be caught off guard. Why does the thief come at night? Well, the thief comes at night because the victims, those he, he comes to take advantage of, are groggy. And I don't know about you, but, but it gets to be about 10 o'clock, and I could barely keep my eyes open to read a book. I'm not ready to defend my house and home from some sort of attack. We're vulnerable. We put our guard down. Similarly, the pregnant woman. The pregnant woman doesn't know, or she knows she's pregnant, but she doesn't know when the intensity or the sharpness of the contraction will come. She doesn't know when it will be the time. And so it's the suddenness Now, the point here isn't that God loves a good surprise, that he just wants to jump out and and shock us. The point is saying, rather, the people of the darkness have no expectation at all that this will come, that they are completely unaware of the weight of the problem that they're in. Now, think about how profound that is. When Paul wants to do this contrast between people with hope and people without, how does he state the opposite of people with hope? How would you state it? I mean, when I think about it, I might think about people in despair, people crying out to the Lord, people wringing their hands. Or maybe I might think of people who are cynical, pessimistic. What does Paul do? How does he describe people without hope? Well, this picture here, is people going about the routineness of life. The ordinary day-to-day things. It's a picture of people never expecting anything new to happen. They're caught by surprise because they never look for a solution 
that come from beyond themselves. They are in a world that's a closed system. If you've ever been to my house, there's the kitchen and the dining room and the hallway, and they all sort of make a circle. And you uh, can go around that circle, as my uh, one daughter did one day, about 20 times in a row, over and over and over again, and I'm standing there looking at her, watching the massive energy that's, uh, that's going on there, until one time she says, I'm almost there. You're going in a circle. How do you know when you're almost there? There's nothing that will interrupt your pattern to tell you when you've arrived. The picture that Paul's painting here of those caught in the darkness is of a people that see no expectation of hope coming from outside of their, their life and their day. This is, I think, what he's uh, pointing to when he says the people feel free to get drunk. I don't think he's talking here about alcoholism or someone drowning their sorrows when he's talking about people without hope. I think the picture, rather, is they've gone home from the day of work and there's nothing left for them to do. Why bother staying alert? Why bother being prepared and ready? Because all that's left for you to do is go to sleep and and bed. Nothing is going to change. You don't realize the hopelessness that you're in. And that is an utterly hopeless situation. That, in fact, is the bleakness of it all. Despair here is not wringing your hands, but it's a lack, it's a complete lack of expectation that there could be a hope that will come from beyond you. All you're left with is you. In C.S. Lewis's words in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's like Narnia without Aslan being there. It's always winter, but never cold. Nothing ever comes in to break up And if we're left to actually contemplate that for just one minute, we begin to see the misery of the human condition. We begin to see the hopelessness. In fact, it'll start to drive you mad. That's where if you uh, really recommend Blaise Pascal, great 17th century philosopher and thinker, mathematician, what have you, um, he characterizes the, the miserable condition of humanity seeing no help beyond. And he says, what we do during that time is actually we result to trying to divert our attention. We seek diversion. Give me a good TV show. Let me me veg through binge watching. Uh, Let me me dive into an escapist novel. Let me me do something social. Uh, He starts, Pascal starts describing that's what we do. But then he quickly moves on to say, actually, what's more common is our busyness. Let me fill my schedule up so much. Let me stress myself out and drive myself crazy. Why? Because I would rather be stressed out and crazy than left alone for five minutes to contemplate the misery of my condition. And in fact, maybe I can convince myself that my busyness will actually do something to address the darkness that I find myself in. Maybe I think I can actually solve some of these things. No. We're alone. Cannot ignore it. And that's where Paul wants to lead this church to see 
that the situation for those of the darkness is much, much more catastrophic. It's much more dire. And that's the second characteristic. The first one is that they think that they're on their own, alone. The second is that they don't see that the problem is actually much greater than anything they could solve themselves. However much we think the darkness we experience now is bad, we don't actually get the depth of the problem. I've noticed this with the news, have you? I mean, you read about these things, like I said, they're horrific. Whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's, you know, shootings, whatever, racial injustice. They're in the news and they stun you, but then either in that same article or in the paper the next day, there's a news story saying, well, if we just do this, we will then change it and it will never happen again. If we just fix this one problem, if we just pass this one bit of legislation, then the problem will, it will stop. You see, we don't understand the problem. The problem is much deeper. But God sees. God knows that these problems can't just be dealt with on the surface. In fact, he knows the cuts need to be deep. He knows that he needs to come in and take wickedness and evil on. He needs to bring justice and righteousness. He needs to condemn things that are wicked. He needs to keep accounts. That's what the day of the Lord means. That's what the whole trajectory of the Old Testament, as it points to this day of the Lord, looked forward to, a day when God would come back and deal righteousness and justice. For those in the darkness who don't realize it, they would not be able to escape this. Now, sometimes you hear about the, the academic discussions about the problem of evil, and it's usually, where was God when, when these horrific things happened? Well, from the Bible's perspective, I mean, it is not as though God is just sort of letting things happen. That's the perspective of God, keeping a record of all of these things and promising in his, by the depth of his being that he will bring justice. And that's the picture that you got from that Old Testament passage in Isaiah 59. Did you hear what it said? That God looked around and he saw truth far off. He saw righteousness that was being uh, overlooked, injustice reigning, truth lacking is darkness and nobody is there to do anything about it listen to what he says in verse 15 of that passage the Lord saw it and it displeased him and he saw that there was no man to intercede so what happened it was clear that something needed to happen so it says that the Lord himself acts and what an amazing picture the Lord himself putting on armor and going to war, putting on armor and doing battle, repaying those for the wicked deeds. Paul has this image in mind, a day of the Lord that will be terrifying. And all of us here, I think, hearing that would rightfully tremble. But how then does he transition from that to talking to Christians, to talking to anybody, 
and saying that you have good hope from this, that you could actually face that day. I mean, isn't this why Christians are hypocrites? If you look at the people of light here, how could there possibly be a people of the light? What is it that we could with, about ourselves that we could withstand that? Well, Paul has this passage in mind. But the interesting thing about how he employs this is that even though he alludes to the passage in verse 8, he doesn't describe it until verses 9 and 10. And when Paul describes it, he describes it as already taken place by Christ on the cross. This day of war against darkness isn't just in the future, but for the church, for Christians, it's a day that has already taken place. Guys, do you know that is what Christian hope is? I'm tired of people talking about hope like it's this pie-in-the-sky thing. Like being a Christian means that you just have to be an optimist. That you just think that things will turn out better. No, our hope isn't just looking for some day when things will happen. Our hope is grounded in the fact that this has happened. God in Christ has done this war. He has done battle with sin and wickedness. He has taken all of our sin and destroyed it on the cross taking it upon himself so that we can now look to that future day, to the day of the Lord, with confidence and hope, knowing that we can even withstand that day because all the wrath has been poured out. But even more than that, it's not just that we'll get there and we'll realize we skated through, but we see that day as God ordained by God. That's the way that passage in Isaiah ends. Arise and shine, for thy light has come. It's this glorious image of, the, of God going to battle with darkness as the light just dispels it all and destroys it. It's a wonderful image and passage. And now he's saying that must inform how we live. That hope must now spill into our day. A Christian faces this day not only with the assurance that we'll escape judgment, with the eager hope that that day is dawning. God wants us to see that. He wants that day to characterize us. He says in verse 5, you need to know that you are people of the day. You see what he's saying there? It's more than just saying you're a people that will see that day, or you're a people that will once get to that and get all the blessings of that day. He says you are of that day. He says it even more clear in verse 8. He says, you belong to the day. You belong to the day. That's your existence. Imagine looking forward to a vacation to some foreign country. You start making preparations. Maybe you learn a little bit about the language. You learn a bit about the culture. You do some things to change your life, but really, you know, you're going to have a good time. But if you're going to move there, it starts changing your life now radically. You really dig into learning that language. You really get to know the culture. You start living like it now because you know that's going to be your destination. Does 
your hope dictate anything in your life? Does that day reflect at all in your day-to-day? Or do you act like the people of the darkness? Do you act as those who have a closed system where nothing will ever change, where no hope comes from beyond that? It's easy to act that way. It's easy to act like we're children of the darkness or that we live in the dark because the clues are all around us. Some of you remember in August the solar eclipse. Yeah. Um, Some of you traveled for it. Some of you uh, bought those fancy glasses where you could see. Some of you maybe like me got a little cardboard box and tried to look at it. If you've ever, if you did that, you would have uh, been outside and noticed that it did get dark. Even here in Connecticut, it got a little bit dark that day, about two in the afternoon. And uh, the birds stopped chirping. Even here, they stopped chirping. And the, the bugs, the, the crickets, they started going like it was nighttime. Now imagine if you were to take your clues from your environment. You would say, well, yeah, it's getting dark here, and I know my, clock, my watch says it's 2 o'clock, but, you know, crickets are going, so leaving work, see ya. Drive home, get into bed, <laughs> go to sleep. It's ridiculous. But we as Christians, so often, we look at the world around us, we look at our environment, and we say, oh, it must be darkness. Paul's saying, no, you are children of the day. You belong to the light. And that needs to characterize who you are and how you live your life. It's different. We are changed. This is Paul's message for us as he desires us strongly to see this. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be a a child of the light? How do we have this hope? Well, again, I want to look at two things. The first thing, exactly like the realization that needs to happen for the people of the darkness. We as well need to see that the problems, the darkness in our life, are far bigger than us. Far bigger than things that we can handle. We need to understand that our darkness includes the sin in our hearts. We need to stop convincing ourselves that hope, true hope, lies within what we can control as if we could just work a lot harder at work and finally get to the point where we can plateau. That we can finally get our degree and then we can coast because we've arrived. Whether we can finally work really hard and control our circumstances so that we'll no longer have the things that frustrate us. I can get better at at my health. I can get better at my sin. I can get better at my relationships with other people. I can improve here work, 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 and then eventually I'll get to that point where there's no darkness and I can start experiencing light. That's not going to happen. We think about this in the society. Well, if we could just elect our way to a new day, or if we could just socially engineer our culture so that people can be changed, that everybody will be happy and we will get the light. No, the cut must be deeper. We must need to see God coming in and putting to death 
sin. That isn't the story. When we get to that point in saying it's not in our control, that doesn't lead us to despair. It actually leads us to freedom. Freedom to say, I finally, there is a hope that is much more solid than my flimsy ability. There is a hope that can actually do something about it, not just scratch the surface. There is a war that can, be, that can happen, unlike any human war, there is a war that can happen that can be the end of all wars. And indeed, that war has happened on the cross as Christ comes. So finally, when we think about what it's like to live as children of God, you can take everything I just said, and you can think of that as a call to detachment. Well, Christ has already done it, so why bother living so confident? Or Christ is going to do it all at the last day, so why bother even worrying now? But I want to say that what Paul's arguing for here is actually a, a conception of being of the life that energizes you to faith. It actually motivates you. I know that's counterintuitive, but, but look at how Paul sees this. Paul, with that image of Isaiah 59 in mind, begins to describe the church. How does he describe it? Well, he draws our attention to that battle. But instead of the Lord putting on the armor, instead of Jesus putting on the armor to do battle, who does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5 puts on that armor? You do. You do. Verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. See what he's saying here? And this isn't even just a command to say, go put on this armor. He's saying this in the, in the aorist. It's completed action. This has been put on for you, having put on this armor. When you became a Christian, you put this on. You are wearing Christ. It's the uniform of Christ, faith, hope, and love. And as he does battle, he will do battle for you as you live faithfully. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, this idea that, that you are consistent with what the Lord says, that you're buying into the promises and living in, in life in line with them. Love, that you're no longer going to be living for yourself, but, but can now experience the, the redeeming love of God so that you can now live for others. Hope, a hope not just built on what, what we, I can accomplish on myself, but a hope that comes from what Christ has done, the sure hope that he will consummate things in the last day. And as we wear this, we have this amazing image of us going to war, not a war condemning others or destroying others, a war that actually sees the one who is the true light calling us the light of the world. And as we go out in our faithfulness, bearing Christ in our lives, everywhere we go, light is dispelling darkness. And as people submit to Christ, we're being transformed 
And as Peter says, the morning star is arising in their hearts so that the new day begins to dawn wherever Christ reigns, first in your heart and then in everyone else that you come into contact with who comes to Christ. This is the Christian hope. It's far better than the hope that gets offered out at this time of year. I mean, look, I'm no Grinch. I love the distraction of Christmas. I love eggnog. I love the trees. I love the decorations. I love parties. I'm all for it. But that distraction becomes bitter when you realize if you expect that to be your hope. That distraction becomes bitter when January comes around and you put the tree out to the curb and take the lights down and you're back to to the darkness and the gloom and all the real darkness that's out there that you are facing by yourself. No, Jesus comes to make you children of the day. A day that will conquer the night. He comes to make you children of light, light that dispels the darkness, that will never return again. That's your hope. That's the hope God wants for you. That's the hope Paul is trying to assert to you. That's the hope he wants you to live in. Let's pray.